give you a sense of where we are in this letter. Paul has just written about Jesus, particularly about how Jesus humbled himself, made himself low, becoming a servant. That was his obedience to the Father's will. And his obedience, the obedience of the King of glory led him to the cross, where the giver of life chose death, and a scandalous death at that, so that those who believe in him could have life. And because Jesus did that, because he made himself low, the Son made himself low, the Father exalted him, lifted him up. Gave him the name above every name, the name that is worthy of worship and honor. And so Paul kicks off this next section saying, therefore, in light of all of that, in light of what I've just said about Jesus, here's how you're to live. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad." And rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray together. God of grace and mercy, would you help us to understand your word? Help us to understand how this this passage, these verses have bearing on our lives. But more than that, would you use your word to point us to the word? Would you point us again and again to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? I pray, Lord, particularly for those of us without hope, those of us who are struggling, who are frantically looking for somewhere place our feet, something comforting to lay our eyes on. I pray that would be Jesus. So God, would you bless the reading, the hearing, and now the preaching of your holy word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you may remember the, uh, the television show, Extreme Makeover, Home Edition, 
the uh, the '90s saw a glut of extreme makeover shows, but the one that really had some enduring longevity to it was the the home home edition, the home version of that show. Of course, now home repair shows, DIY shows, you know, like there's a dime a dozen. But the granddaddy of them all was Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Uh, and if you don't remember, if you don't know the show, what it, what it did was um, you had a family who was in some particular great financial need. And it also so happened that their house was in great disrepair. And because they had devoted their lives or their money or whatever to this need over here, their house was falling down around their ears. And so Ty Pennington and his crew would come in with their big bus uh, and their volunteer crews and their Sears donated appliances. And they would basically renovate the entire home. And it kind of got to the point later on where they would just basically tear down the old house and build them a brand new one. But so that was that was the show. And, of course, after the bus moves and the crews go away, now you have the, you know, the family actually is still in the same financial need. They just happen to have a newer house and probably now with a newer tax burden because their house is bigger and nicer. Um, but that's just the cynic in me pointing out that, you know, there's, there's this blank at the end of the show that nobody ever talks about. Um, I want you to imagine your life, particularly your religious life, as a house, in a house. Um, your house is broken down. And I mean really broken down, right? Holes in the roof, subfloor rotting, wiring faulty, appliances not working, heater on the fritz. And what's worse is you owe more on the house than you can pay. The bank is ready to foreclose on your home. They're ready to take the property from you. And to add insult to injury, uh, the city, because of the disrepair of your property, uh, has levied a huge fine against you, against your home, and they just want to raise it to the ground, right? There's nothing of value. They don't want to... You are, your property is condemned, right? So that's your condition. Imagine that, okay? Your house not only is in shambles, but uh, you're in debt and you're under condemnation. Now that is not too far off from the way that the Bible describes your spiritual condition. Now I want you to imagine that a gracious benefactor comes along and he pays your debt, right? He comes in free and full and he says, okay, I'm going to pay the bank what you owe. And so he he takes care of the mortgage and the house is yours. And he goes to the city and takes care of the fine and gets the property out from underneath condemnation, right? He gets the city off your back. What wonderful news. You have, your, your debt is paid for, and you are no longer under condemnation. How amazing. But you still got a broken down house. There's still something wrong with the house. Well, this is what we're going to look at today. Because if all we have, if, if all that grace offers us, is forgiveness, 
and the house still needs renovation, then we only have a halfway gospel. We only have a halfway grace. Forgiveness is great, but you also need renovation. You also need transformation. And that's what the gospel offers. That's what Jesus gives us. You don't just need someone to come and pay your debts and get you out from under condemnation. No, you need that gracious benefactor to move into your house with you and begin gutting it. Right? Ripping out the moldy sheetrock, pulling up the rotted floors, patching the holes in the roof, putting in wiring that works, giving you new appliances, giving you materials that aren't out of date and destroyed. You need complete and total renewal. And so today we're going to see in this passage that that's what grace does for us and that we are called to become in practice what we already are by grace. And this is what, this is what sets Christianity apart from everything else. We talk about this all the time. This idea of grace is what sets Christianity apart from everything else. Because here's what Christianity says. You are given absolutely what you need. And you didn't do a thing to earn it. But it doesn't stop there. It keeps going. It's not as if, it's not as if Jesus just kind of breaks you even. Right? Declares you not guilty. Gives you a pat on the back and says, go get them, sport. No, he continues to renovate you. That also is an act of his grace. That's what we're going to see here. And so first we're going to look at the call to work out your salvation. And then we're going to look at the motivation behind that call that God is working in you. And then we're going to look at the result of that call and that motivation, which is who you are, who you look like. When you work out your salvation. So, we are called to become in practice what we already are by grace. Paul says, therefore, in light of what Jesus has done, and because Jesus is the suffering servant who gave his life, and because Jesus is the reigning king who reigns over you and is worthy of your praise, therefore, not just when I'm with you, But now much more because I can't be with you, work out your salvation. If you're the least bit familiar with Christianity, um, that should probably smack you in the face like a bucket of cold water. Paul, the same apostle who earlier says in Ephesians 2, 8, that we are saved by grace, not by works, now comes along and says, work out your salvation. Which is it? Is Paul contradictory? Is he schizophrenic? What's the deal? What does he mean when he says, work out your salvation? We've talked about this before, right? There's, when we hear the word salvation as people living in the deep south, we typically think of what's already happened in the past, right? The common question in our culture is, Are you saved? Were you saved? Right? We think about it only in the past tense. 
But that's not the way the Bible talks about our salvation, or that's not the only way. The Bible talks about our salvation as this ongoing process. And so I, I would argue that we need to redefine salvation. Salvation is not the one-time forgiveness of sins. That's simply only part of it. Salvation is actually what God does to free you from your sin for all of your life into eternity. Salvation is God bringing up, working out the blameless life. He forgives you on the front end. He works with you in the middle and one day will present you blameless and perfect. That is salvation from start to finish. That's what Paul means when he says, work out your salvation. He's not saying, he's not saying you need to do something to save yourself. You're in pretty rough shape. Pick it up. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, rip out the rotted wood. Patch the hole in the ceiling. Put in new plumbing. Put in new wiring. Work out your salvation. This reality that Jesus has purchased, this forgiveness that Jesus has made possible, live into it. Walk in it. Be who God has declared you to be. We see, right, that that the Christian life is not a sedentary life. I think if you went back 150 years, sedentary life was probably not a phrase in our culture, right? Um, before, uh, before TV and the Internet, there was, and before all the labor-saving devices we have, there was no sedentary, right? Um, everybody, there, there was no sedentary because nobody got to sit down. Um, now we sit down a lot. And so we're sedentary. But the Christian life is not a sedentary life. It's not a sitting life. It is a life of movement. It's a life of work. Paul can be very clear about this. Work out your salvation. That, that word implies intentionality. It implies effort. Get after it, Paul says. With fear and trembling. We're uncomfortable with those words. Surely... Surely, if God is a God of love, what do we have to be afraid of? And Paul's not really talking necessarily about the fear of dread and condemnation. But he is saying, be aware of who has saved you. Be aware of who God is. Don't live life flippantly. Work out your salvation. Live into your salvation with fear and trembling. It is a holy God who has called you. It is a holy God who has saved you. So, what is this? Is this a, is this a 50-50 model? Right? Is, is Paul saying, God has, uh, God has done your, his part, now you go and do your part. Right? Is Paul looking at them, is Paul looking at us and saying, alright, I'm waiting. God has made salvation possible. Now, those boots, grab those bootstraps and let's get after it. No, this isn't a 50-50 model. The good news is that someone is working in my working. I don't have an analogy 
for that. But it, it's amazing to me. We, we want to do one of two things, right? Because we love simplicity and we love clear lines and we don't like ambiguity. We don't like fogginess. We want to say, either it's me or it's God. Either God has done his part and now I have to do my part. We call that legalism. Or God does it all, man, and I just chill. Right? Hot tub. Christianity. We call that antinomianism against law. Okay? And we, we, most of us in here, every single one of us in here, leans in one direction or the other. And Paul says, nope. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you. It's not either or. It's both and. Work out your salvation. Why? What's the motive? What's driving me? Because God is working in me. Let's look at this. A few things to point out there in verse 13. God's work... Paul says, because it is God who works in you. First, we should say this. God's work is constant. Literally, all of the emphasis in the Greek is on the constant, never-stopping work. Literally, God is the one who is working the work. Okay? So, what that means is God doesn't do his part and stop and then wait on you to pick it up. Nor that God takes a break, needs a breather. But God's work is constant in you. He is always at work. This fits with what Paul already said earlier in Philippians 1. I am confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. If you are in Christ, God's work is never finished. And so you can take heart that even when you don't feel it. Listen, in our, in our day of Christianity that loves to feel something. We need to hear the assurance of scripture that says, in Christ, God is always working whether you feel it or not. I don't care if you don't have the warm fuzzies. God's at work. God is working in you and his work is constant. But notice this. God's work is also all-encompassing. It says he is working both to will and to work. Listen, there, there are two parts of every action you do. Every action I do, there are two parts. There is the will, the want to, and there is the work. The action itself. Right? You don't actually... I know this is hard to believe. We don't actually ever do anything we don't want to do. Well, Kevin, I, I hate my job. Right? I don't, I don't want to go to work. That may be true. Do you want to starve? Do you want to be homeless? Do you want your family to starve and be homeless? Well, no. So you want to go to work. Right? On the mornings that I run, when that alarm goes off at 530, I have, I have some competing want-tos. Right? There is the want-to stay in the bed. 
particularly now that it's dark again. And now, again, that it's cold, right? Uh, When it's dark and cold, the bed is a strong want to. But the joy of running, which I know sounds really foreign to some of you, you think that's crazy, but the joy of the endorphin rush of exercise early in the morning is also a want to. And so even though I don't want to get out of bed, I want to run. So we only do what we want to do. And when it comes to religion, what we're typically maybe used to thinking is, all right, I'm going to do the action and hopefully that'll change my want to's. Right? I'm going to work from the outside in. But here's the problem. You need a whole lot more than the outside in. In fact, what Jesus says This is not just like wrathful Old Testament stuff. This is actually what Jesus, Mr. Gracious, Jesus Compassionate says. He says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the evil words that you speak and the evil things that you do and the evil thoughts that you think, they actually come out of an evil will, an evil heart. That's Jesus. The amazing thing about the grace of God is that he doesn't just work on the outside, prettying up your actions. He's also primarily at work on the inside. He renovates. Not, he doesn't just paint the house. It's a, it's a full-on makeover, right? He's working, he's working at the heart. He renovates your heart and your actions, right? Your will and your work, both of those God is working on. So, Paul says, work out your own salvation. It's yours. You're responsible for it. You need to work it out. Because God is working in you, both to will and to work. Heart and hands are encompassed in God's gracious work. Paul's summary is in 1 Corinthians 10, 15. This is a, he says it another way. He says it this way. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul has been compared in this passage. Paul has been compared to other celebrity preachers, to other apostles. Some of Paul's opponents have said, eh, Paul, you don't need to listen to that guy. There are people who are much better speakers than him. There are people who are much better looking than him. That was a thing. Okay? Uh, so, Paul, eh, okay. Here's what Paul says about that in response to that. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Paul claims that. I can't, I can't claim that, right? I usually use grace as a pass. Like, well, thank God it's grace because I'm certainly not going to work that hard. Paul doesn't, Paul, surprisingly, doesn't do that. He says, God's grace toward me was not in vain. I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, 
but the grace of God that is with me. So here's a question. Who's really at work? Me? Well, God. The answer is yes. Both. It's not either or, it's both and. But here's an even better question. Why is God doing this? Look at the end of verse 13. He says he does it for his good pleasure. That God is working your salvation in you because he wants to. Because he delights to. Because it pleases him. What's your view of God? I mean, when you get down to the heart level on an individual basis, when you look at your life and you feel convicted maybe about where your life is and what you're doing, how do you see God in that interaction? Maybe you see him as as distant or indifferent or not there altogether. Maybe you see him as angry, hesitant, toe-tapping, finger-wagging. Here's Samuel again. I guess I'll help him out. Paul says God does this because it makes him happy. He delights to work your salvation. He doesn't need to. He doesn't have to. He wants to. It brings him glory. It brings him praise to work out His grace in your life and to see you working it out. Is there room in your mindset for that kind of God? Is that the sort of God that you imagine that you serve? He delights to work out salvation. It is for His good pleasure, for His glory. So that's the motivation God is working in us. What does this look like? What's the result of this working? Paul gives us some pictures here. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Blameless and innocent children without blemish. Isn't that how you would describe yourself? Among whom you shine as lights in the world. How you doing with that? Do you feel, right, the picture there being of a a luminary or of of a lamp, right, that shines with a, that shines forth with a light that's put in it, right? You, You light the wick and you let the luminary go and it sails through the sky giving light. How do you feel about your ability? How do you feel about your light shining? One of the reasons that I, um, that I don't really care to go in gyms is that 
the walls are covered in mirrors. And I would like I would like to pretend it's because of the people who stand in front of those mirrors. And that's some of it, right? The muscle heads were like, you know, like they kind of weird me out a little bit. I'm, they're grunting a lot. They're dropping heavy weights on the floor. It's kind of strange. Uh, they seem to really like looking at themselves in the mirror. But I think in reality, it's because I don't like standing in front of the mirror. I don't like what I look like when I work out. Right? When I, because that, I mean, that's what Paul's calling us. He's saying, work out. So if I stand in front of the mirror when I work out, right, if I don't have a mirror there, I have in my head an image, right? The image of me running, the image of me working out is far better than what I actually end up looking like, right? Uh, When I stand in front of the mirror, I'm like, really? That's what I look like, huh? Okay. My arms are that scrawny. Awesome. I don't like I don't like mirrors and gems, but what Paul is doing is he's holding up a mirror. And he's saying that when or as you work out this salvation as God is working in you, this is what it ought to look like. And isn't it interesting that when Paul holds the mirror up, he doesn't give step by steps. Right? He doesn't because this, this is what I want. I want a new law. I want, Paul, just tell me what the, the five habits of highly effective people are. I'll put those in practice in my daily life, and it'll be great. Paul doesn't ever do that. He never says, do this, then this, and then this. Paul doesn't, doesn't ever seem to give really lists of tasks. What he actually shows us is a kind of person. He shows us a character. So he doesn't give us what we want, right? That would be far easier if he would just give me a list of things to check off and do. No, he gives me a person, which is far harder. But that's actually what Jesus is renovating. He's not renovating simply my actions so that I can be a highly effective person. He's renovating all the deep down brokenness. He's changing my character. So Paul gives us some descriptions of character. He calls us blameless children who avoid grumbling and complaining. Again, hear the gospel calling us to be who we are. Be blameless children. You are children of God, sons and daughters, bought by the king. That's not in doubt. If you are in Christ, you belong to God. You are an adopted son. You are an adopted daughter. That cannot be lost. So, act like it. Now, my parents never said this. This wasn't one of their phrases. I had some friends, but I remember I would do this. I would do this when I was a youth minister, uh, and we we would go on trips, even short ones, right? And I'm letting the kids off the bus, uh, and I would say, "Remember whose you are." Not, y'all act right now. I think that's what my parents probably said. Well, be careful. Um, but Paul says, "Remember whose you are." You are children of God. And so aim to live a life that is blameless, without blemish. Let's look a little bit closer. He says, don't... He says, one, he says, do everything. You want a list of just five things? Paul says, do everything. Great. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. 
without grumbling or disputing or arguing. And remember that Paul is calling this church, Philippians, the Philippian church, to unity. Well, where does dissension begin? Grumbling and complaining, doesn't it? I mean, you can't, you can't get any more self-centered than that because I grumble when I, don't think I, when, when I think I'm not getting what I deserve. He's actually pointing back to the Exodus. He's pointing back to the Old Testament. When Israel, even though they had seen God carry them through the Red Sea, some amazing things, as soon as they went just a few days without food, they were like, God, did you bring us out here to kill us? They were grumblers. And so were we. Paul says, don't be like that. You have more than you could possibly imagine in Christ. What do you have to grumble about? Grumbling gives rise to strife. Grumbling gives rise to disputing, to arguing. Paul probably has in mind, right, arguing over things that don't matter, inconsequential things. We probably all joke about the church, right? A a church splits over the color of the carpet, but there's a sense in which that's true. Well, I don't think we should have done that. Well, I think we should do this. Disunity. Paul says, that's not, that's not children of God. That's what the, tr- the twisted and crooked generation does. Not you. Not you. Do everything, everything, without grumbling or complaining. Avoid these so that you may be blameless and innocent. What does Paul mean? I think ultimately he does mean that we will be without spot or blemish. Zach mentioned that in Uh, I think it was in his prayer, that we are washed white, that one day, someday, presented in Jesus, we will be perfect. Paul is saying, in the meantime, aim for that. In the meantime, live a life, live your life in such a way that if someone wants to critique you, they got nothing. That when they want to say something negative about you, they'll have to make it up because they don't have any evidence. Paul says, live a life that is blameless and innocent. Paul says in Ephesians 1, that's why he chose us in Christ. That's why God chose us in Christ and gave his son for us, that we would be presented as blameless. That's the goal, to be who you are. You don't belong to this generation, so don't act like you do. And then another description he gives us, he calls us shining lights. What is it that causes these lights to shine? I mean, if you think about it, a light, at least in the in this sense, right, has to derive its power from somewhere else. It doesn't spontaneously have power in and of itself, it must. It is a derived light. Okay. So, when Paul says shining as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, where does that come from? He says holding tight onto the word of life. All that stuff that I just told you about Jesus giving of Himself, dying, rising again, being exalted to heaven, the gospel, the good news. Hold on to that. The more you hold on to it, the more you will shine. You'll go from being a five-watt bulb 
to a 60-watt bulb to a 120-watt bulb. And it won't have anything to do with you and all to do with Jesus. But you've got to hold on to the word of life. Shining light, spotless children. In other words, work out your own salvation as God works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul gives one more incentive. He says in verse 17, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering. Poured out as a drink offering is, is one word in the Greek. And, it's, and it means, literally, to offer a drink offering. The drink offering was something that went along with a bigger sacrifice. But that one word is where we get our word spent. Even if I am spent on the offering of your faith, on the sacrifice of your faith, I'm glad. Because it means I can arrive at the last day and be proud. Be proud that I didn't work in vain, that I didn't run in vain, but that my work had purpose and meaning. That when you stand up at the last day and Jesus looks at you and says, well done, I can be proud. Like a, like a daddy on graduation day as his son walks across the stage to receive that diploma. In every sense, it's the son's diploma. And yet it's the daddy's too. Paul says, I want to be proud of you on the last day. And I want you to be proud of me, that we can rejoice together. That's the end. That's the goal. That's what we're striving towards. So keep working, working with God at work in you. Augustus Toplady, which is a really funny last name, it's a funny first name too, was a hymn writer in the 1600s, and he wrote this in his hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone, just a few lines. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen, and never was forfeited yet. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Friend, do you know that grace? Do you know the grace of God that doesn't offer you a 50-50 model of salvation? That doesn't say... Your salvation, it's yours to attain. Just reach out and grab it. If it actually invades your life, cancels your sin, and then goes to work in you, putting it to death. As Charles Wesley wrote in his hymn, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Are you free? 
come to Jesus and know what it means to live life as a shining light to someone else's glory. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to examine our own hearts? To examine what it means to be in you, Lord Jesus. Help us to fathom how far you go to save us from our sin. That you haven't just paid the debt and relieved the condemnation but that by your grace you are renovating the whole house from the ground up. Oh Lord, if we are stuck in a halfway religion, striving in our own strength to be better so that you will love us more, would you wreck that expectation and exceed it? Would you show us that you delight to work in us by grace for your good pleasure, for your matchless eternal glory and our unfathomable eternal good? There is nothing better than what is offered to us in Christ. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would come to you and that we would lay our deadly doing down, that we would lay the burden of our sin at your feet, and that we would have freedom, and that we would know life. And we pray it in your matchless name. Amen.